This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I'm editor-at-large and editorial cartoonist with Mississippi Today. Our guest today hails from Oxford. David Cruz not only has mastered the title of author, but add to that the equation, he's a former U.S. Marshal and current U.S. District Court Clerk for the Northern District of Mississippi. Uh, He's produced... An, an award-winning documentary as well about the incredible 1899 Swanee football team called Unrivaled. He also um, has got the fantastic book, The Mississippi Book of Quotations, and we're going to talk to him as well. Anyway, once calculated, the sum of all parts adds up to one heck of an adjective-filled description. And basically, um, you're not going to believe this guy's resume. He's incredible. He's very, 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 very – he's a renaissance man. We'll just put it that way. And uh, before we're going to bring David on the show, and I'd love to do that. By the way, uh, I want to say hello to Jermaine. Jermaine, good, good morning. Good morning, Marshall. Man, I tell you what, what a gorgeous day out there. Spring has sprung in Mississippi. It sprang. I think it's going to unsprang next week. Oh, no, it'll probably snow. Kill everything <laughs> that's green, and then the pollen will have to come back out again. Okay, let's want, want. Let's go ahead and be right. negative on a Monday. Right, let's well, be negative on it. But maybe the cold will kill the pollen. I don't know how that works. No, I think that takes rain to do that. That. I okay. don't know if cold kills the bite, kills mosquitoes. Now that's good. So that's a good thing. I know it's the weather. Just it needs Xanax. It's all over the place. Right. But I tell you what, um, I get a chance. Speaking of gratitude, and you know, it's, sometimes you're thinking, oh, gratitude. Oh, here we come. Over the weekend, I got to go to the Hope Conference. Okay. Uh, in Jackson, and the Hope Conference is for cancer survivors, caregivers, mm-hmm. and of course, people that support them. It's mm-hmm. just a very emotional, very powerful program where you basically, if you've got cancer, you need a support group or you need to find out a little bit about things you need to learn about, obviously. Yeah. As a 23-year cancer survivor, trust me, when you hear those three words, your brain just goes... Right. I talked it. about you actually this weekend with my mom. It, it was a story about um, a melanoma case. Yeah. And I told Mama that you were a survivor. So we actually spoke about you this weekend in relation to that. I thought my ears were burning. <laughs> they were. <laughs> so didn't your mom also, didn't your dad used to be embalm people? I hope that wasn't in <laughs> relation to me, possibly. But... Yeah, my father was a mortician. Okay, okay. <laughs> just sl- just checking. I like the way you slid that way. <laughs> well, you know, I always like always go to the dark side on right. those kind of thoughts. It was it was great. I'm actually, you know, it's funny because my wife never goes to many events with me because yeah. we've been married for thirty years and she's been to a lot of events and she's heard all mm-hmm. my jokes. Mm-hmm. But she mm-hmm. went with me, and the reason she went with me, they gave me an award. Yeah, which was really touching because this was the seventh time they've given the award, and I was the first living person they've given it to, and that meant That's a lot. Amazing. Yeah, and I just was incredibly grateful. I mean, and I spoke about my mother in law who has got 
stage four breast mm-hmm, cancer. Mm-hmm. She's really struggling mm-hmm. right now. We're going to run back over to Atlanta to go see her. Um, this is literally the lady who I worked with when I was a high school janitor out of college who set me up with her daughter that I've been married to for That's 30 adorable. years. She is the one, you know, there are people in your life that can totally change the direction of your life. Yeah. She changed the direction of my life. Everything I have is because of Maggie Hurley. Yeah. And so I get up on stage and I'm talking a little bit about Maggie. Amy's in the audience. I see her starting to cry. I start to, to well up. Now, I don't cry. I'm not a big crier. But you don't do that when you're trying to speak because suddenly I couldn't talk. But it was so incredibly powerful. And I had met a lady a little bit earlier, and I'm sorry, but the name has just totally slipped mm-hmm. my brain. She is a six-year stage four cancer um, survivor. She's got it. Got it. Now. Yeah. And she's still doing it. And she said something to me. She's, she volunteers her time. She gives her every bit of her effort to help other people with cancer. And she said, I live to give and I give to live. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, you you just have those moments where you're like, you know, thank you. I really am honored to get that Mm -hmm. award. But the the award I got wasn't just the trophy, which was really cool. It's a little lighthouse. And and I'd done their logo for them like, you know, 20 years ago. So, I mean, it was neat to see that and everything else. But the gift that I walked away from was mm-hmm. this degree of gratitude and just wanting to give back yeah. to people. So anyway, it was a great event. I appreciate them giving me the honor. But at the end of the day, the honor was truly in the fact that I was able to walk away with that kind right. of wisdom. What a quote to help put you know life in, into perspective. Right. Um, especially when it comes down to giving to live. You know, it's yeah. just something that fills you so much that. You know, it gives you life because you gave. And so that's such good stuff. And my condolences again to you, Marshall, um, in relation to your mother-in-law. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I I pray for my wife because she's so close to her mom. This is really hard on her. I lost my folks six years ago. And, and, you know, I'm at that season. I'm at that age where, you know, that happens. But, um, you know, it's tough on my wife. And and, and because I love my wife, you know, I hate to see her go through this. And I'm trying to be a, not as big of a jerk as I normally am, so, which is a struggle. <laughs> You're her rock. And you, 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 you really do uh, matriculate through these feelings so well. Especially when, you know, you're talking yeah. with me about it. And I, I just think it's great. So I know your wife is in good hands. Yeah, but what kind, would I be like a mood stone or what kind of rock would I be? I'm trying to figure <laughs> that one out. So I don't know. I'll look it up. Maybe a jade or something. Yeah, I jaded. Know. I like that. No, wait, never mind. I tell you what, I, I'm excited about our guest today. Me too. And thank you. I mean, I'm just... I'm so thrilled to have David Cruz on. And I'm going to read real quick. This is off from the back of his book. And this kind of basically... I, I almost should do an on-air quiz on this. All right. Did he really walk the whole Natchez Trace for 450 miles? Why, yes, he did. Um, did he win a, a five-beta key? Yes. Did he run 40 triathlons? Yes. Wow. Um, yeah. Did he uh, climb the tallest peak in the Western Hemisphere? What? Yes. we got a Renaissance man on the air with us right now. David, thank you for joining us. Did I set <laughs> hey, you up Marshall. well enough? Yeah, yeah, um, no, I, I think that's a bit overkill. Um, I, I think all that tells you is I got uh, strong legs and a weak mind. About to say, or you'd really make really good use of your time. I got to give you credit on that because you got twins, also. You, you know, you you raised two twins, so you've been busy. Well, I think the twins actually raised me. Uh, they, the twins, and, and their mama raised me. 
Yeah, you know, I think you and I got a lot in common there. I, I totally get that on that. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm holding in my hand right now the updated and expanded Mississippi book, book of quotations, which was one of my favorite books anyway. Uh, and the reason is, you know, and I don't mean this in disrespect because I think this is a really good use for this book. It's perfect on the back of a toilet because you can open it up at any point in that book and find joy. Yes, you can. You can find humor in there. You can find poignancy in there. You can find serious things. You can find yeah. absurdity. And you can find treachery in there, too. I mean, Mississippi is, is full of some of the, you know, we have the richest writers, uh, the most compelling uh, authors and musicians and storytellers in the world. And uh, I endeavor to capture th- that rhythm, that spirit, that understanding, and that history, uh, and that storytelling ability of Mississippi in this book of quotations, which uh, the Mississippi book of quotations, you know, it's 2,000 great uh, insightful lines um, um, broken down into 65 different categories, love, um, you know, life, hate, humor, um, civil rights, civil war, um, the the, uh, the writing, the music, the broad the broad breadth of things that that compose our lives. You do. You've got it. You've got it organized via different topics. But I mean, you've got such a wide range of Mississippians that are quoted in here. I, I see Steve Holland, for instance, uh, and needless to say, Steve Holland is a walking quote machine. Uh, some of my favorites, Eddie Rambo's, that was a wasted thought. I love that one. Um, you know, I've had my ups and downs, Brett Favre. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate quote and probably means more now than it did back when you even collected the quote. So um, it's just an incredible book. Let me ask you this. How do you go about collecting 2,000 quotes? Well, it's a lifetime of reading. Um, I was really blessed and lucky and who I, I chose to be my, my parents. My dad was a... a taught uh, 19th and 20th century British literature wow. at Ole Miss. Uh, he had gone to the University of Virginia, got his master's and Ph.D. there. I, I'll, later on, I'm, perhaps I'll tell you a great story about the one and only time I, I met William Faulkner, which was not in Oxford where I grew up, but actually in Charlottesville when, when Faulkner was the writer in residence at the University of Mississippi. But to get back to your question, um, uh, since, since I was in high school, maybe even earlier, I, you know, I read constantly. I attribute that to the influence of my dad um, in, in large part and, and just a curiosity that I always had. And whenever I run across a, 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 a great line, a compelling line, a riveting line, a humorous line, a poignant line, I always write them down because uh, my memory is not all that good. So I just I always write them down. And I throw them in, I throw a, on a scrap of paper into a shoebox or put it in a notebook. Um, and um, as I got older, I, I started reading more and more. I tried to read all the Mississippi authors and listen to all the Mississippi mus- musicians and, uh, and listen to great storytellers. Um, and, um, and, and so one day I, just, I, I was reflecting, I said, dang, you know, I, I've got tons and tons of great lines by Mississippi authors and musicians and others. Um, I wonder if this would make a good book. And so I, call, I, I went by and saw Neil White, who owns Nautilus Publishing, and said, Neil, let, let me show you what I got. Do you think this would make a book? And he said, this will make a great book. And so I, I then divided those 2,000 quotations, I say, into about 65 different categories um, and, you know, thematic categories and, and, you know, tried to 
capture the rhythms and the texture of, of Mississippi through through words. Um, and, and, and thankfully, uh, Neil published it. It's now been through two hardback printings. It's now in, in a paperback printing. The first, the the hardbacks have sold out. Um, it, but it's a really rich volume, and, and and I think worthy of anyone who loves history, who loves literature, who loves music, uh, who loves to preach, or who loves to talk. It's 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 worth reading. It's and it's worth buying. I've got, I, I agree with you 100%. I've got a Mississippi collection on my bookshelf, and it's right there with it because it's it's fantastic. And I know I was not joking when I said you can open it up. I just randomly opened it up to William Faulkner saying, we have become a nation of bragging, sentimental, and not too courageous liars. I mean, that that could work today, too. Uh, <laughs> yes, it can, On unfortunately, on all sorts of levels. You know, it just shows you how wise and prescient uh, William Faulkner was. Um, and you know, since he uses the word "lion" in there, one of the two of my favorite uh, categories in the book are "lion" and and "truth." Um, I, uh, one of the great things about working in a court environment, both as a U.S. marshal and now as is the administrative and operational head of the court's uh, staff, um, you run into great stories in 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 court and and in law enforcement activities and and uh i when i was u.s marshal i was sitting in court one day there was a defendant on the stand and he he uh he kind of got tangled up in his testimony and uh um and and finally in desperation he blurted out you know it's hard to remember the truth when there's so much truth to remember um i love that it's hard to remember the truth when there's so much truth to remember. I, um, and uh, so he did. He ended up probably trying to perjure himself, but he, he wiggled out of it at the last minute. That is that is so true. I think I tried to use that line on my with my wife one time, and it didn't go over very well. So um, <laughs> as you could imagine, I, I love this. And I just flipped to the dog section, and I see I made it. I was pretty impressed. And sometimes you don't <laughs> find a dog. Sometimes the dog finds you. So there you go. That's- there you go, and 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 a, your great line there, and and of course William Faulkner had a great line. He said he said one time, uh, "I don't trust a, a person who do, who doesn't love a dog," and I think there's a, a lot of truth amen. That. Oh, amen. Anybody's mean to a dog, man, you just like steer steer totally clear of them. Let's touch on the U.S. Marshal part, and then we'll get to what you do today. How in the world did you go from I mean in school and decide to become a U.S. Marshal? Uh, that a uh, great question. You know, I'd worked a stint uh, um, as a financial investigator, and I, you know, went through the law enforcement academy, and and you know, had a certain set of skills, and and got lucky, and got to become a U.S. marshal, and, and worked with an incredible group of guys, including uh, uh, the guy, the gentleman, my supervisory deputy, uh, Eddie Rambo. What's not to love about a guy who's who who himself was a great storyteller and a deputy U.S. marshal, but has the name Rambo? Oh yeah. Um, and uh, uh, for, he's from originally from Prentice County, Mississippi, and just a great guy and a great st- storyteller. Um, and, you know, the great thing about, uh, you know, working with the U.S. Marshals, it's a very professional organization. I got to – we had a great team. We accomplished a lot. Um, and, um, and, I, and, I, and you know, as land, yep, I got great stories, great stories out of it. Perhaps my – you know, if, if you'll indulge me, one quick story. Um, 
in fact, Eddie Rambo and I, um, I got a tip late one night, shortly after my bride and I got married. We were living out in the country, out from Oxford, out at Tula, and I got a phone call from a fugitive task force out in Texas. Um, they, they had been hunting a guy on the Texas 10 Most Wanted list, and um, they'd gotten a tip that he might be in Mississippi, so I got the information they had, and Eddie and I went up to uh, Corinth, Mississippi, um, and... Uh, did some interviews and, and started tracking this guy. We tracked him from Corinth up, up into uh, Tennessee, over into Alabama, and then back into Mississippi. We caught up with him early one morning at the first Monday flea market there in Ripley, Mississippi, a great, iconic uh, Mississippi institution. And um, he was in, in the restaurant there on the flea market grounds. And so Eddie and I and, and a couple of the other deputies w- walk in, uh, Eddie and I got in, set in a booth behind where our, our, uh, this guy who was a, he was on the Texas 10 most wanted list. He, he was a double murderer. He'd been on the run for two years. You know, because when you arrest somebody, your whole goal is to keep the public safe, to keep yourself safe, and, and to keep uh, the bad guy safe. And so we waited for some people cleared out. Uh, we, we were in hunting clothes. You know, we got a cup of coffee. We waited for people cleared out. We thought we could arrest him safely. And so we drew down on him and said, and said, hey, you keep your hands where we can see them, and everybody else in here keep your seat, because we didn't know if he didn't have a buddy in there. Um, and so we, I get a gun out of his boot. We get him handcuffed. I'm, I, my whole goal in life, in life now is to get him back to our federal lockup in Oxford, Mississippi. And um, as I'm busting him out of there, this little old lady, she must have been 80 years old, makes a beeline for me, and her voice is kind of quaking and quivering, and she says, sir, sir. And I'm trying to get out of there before she catches up with me and says, why did you interrupt our breakfast and arrest this nice young man? Well, so, so, but she catches up with me and she says, sir, sir, I just want you to know that was the most dramatic breakfast I've ever eaten. <laughs> she went on to, she said, that was better than TV. <laughs> uh, and so I said, well, ma'am, this is my most dramatic breakfast as well. I, you know, I'd never thought of breakfast as dramatic until that moment. Well, and also, too, you've got to take it with you as a, as a huge badge of honor saying that was better than TV. <laughs> yes. I, I, I have to admit, I mean, I'm 55 years old. I've never heard anybody ever tell me I've done anything as better than TV. So you, you've definitely got scoreboard on that. But like I said, you, you've got some incredible stories on that. I mean, and I think about it, you grew up in Oxford and you've watched Oxford change. You know, from the, when the square had a hardware store and there was a cotton gin nearby. And I mean, there's a blacksmith shop right off the square to today, what it is now. It's, it's, it's been amazing. And the people that you've seen and you've gotten to meet over the years, you, you've just kind of almost been an observer watching, you know, Mississippi change, but also getting to be on the front row of, of that change. Well, you are exactly right, Marshall. When when I was growing up in Oxford back in 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 the early '60s, um, in fact, I haven't gone very far in life because the, the site of the U.S. courthouse here in Oxford today is on the site of my elementary school. It was a beautiful old WPA building. It, it was a shame they tore it down to um, to build this courthouse. They should have converted it into a beautiful courthouse. But back in the late in the late '60s, the tendency was just to tear stuff down and build new. Um, so literally where my office is uh, today here in the U.S. courthouse is where my, my seventh grade classroom would have been when I was at Oxford Elementary School. So I definitely haven't gone far in life. Um, but Oxford is so different. When I was growing up here, Oxford was a village of, of 
of about 4,000 people, and it was very Faulknerian. Um, there were only a handful of traffic uh, traffic lights in town, um, um, and so, and in fact, you know, it's that's an interesting thing when you talk about how much it's changed. It's kind of reflected in a, in a in a conversation I heard. I think it was on Fresh Air one day. I was listening to Fresh Air, and um, uh, Terry Gross was interviewing a British writer. And he he was talking about he said you know a sense of place is very important for for my novels, uh, but he said but you know for no one is a sense of place more important than it was for William Faulkner, and then he reflected for a minute and he said but you know I don't have any idea what Faulkner was writing about because I was in Oxford Mississippi recently. And Oxford, Mississippi, is nothing like what Faulkner writes about. It's the nicest town I've ever been in. Well, but when I was growing up here in, in the in the 60s, it was very Faulknerian. Um, only 4,000 people. You would, you know, on Saturdays, you would have um, farmers come in, often with, with mule-drawn carts, bringing their vegetables to sell on the Oxford Square. It's it's you know and there were no bars there were only a handful of of very you know modest restaurants nothing like the uh, great restaurants and 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 bars and 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 musical venues that you have today. Yeah, it's, and now it's got roundabouts. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, which you know to to a, a guy like me is very confusing. Yeah, no, it's like. Well, never mind. I, I don't think I should say that on the radio. But yeah, no, I agree with you. It's it, you almost want to get a lawn chair and a six pack and sit in the middle and watch people navigate it because it's it's really kind of entertaining until you got to drive through it. But but you're right. Yeah, Oxford's interesting in the sense that it's kind of like where the Delta meets the Appalachians, and you know you just have that that mix of cultures there. And of course, it it's such a writer's magnet. It's no wonder. Did you ever think that you were ever going to get into the writing world and and start writing books? Uh, I, I, I did not. Um, it, it baffles me that I did, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that I did. But, you know, to your point there, Marshall, about, you know, the dip, you know, here right on the cusp of the Delta and, and the hills, you know, Oxford is in, definitely in the hill country, reminds me of a, of a great uh, conversation I had in, uh, with uh, Judge Alan Pepper. He, unfortunately, he's now he's passed away. But the first day I ever met Judge Pepper, shortly before um, he he became a federal judge, uh, Judge Pepper was from the Delta from Cleveland, and um, I went down to Cleveland from Oxford to to get as when I was U.S. Marshal to give him a briefing on security briefing and and talk about other matters related to his becoming a federal judge, and he was a great raconteur. And he, uh, so I go into his office and he says, Dave, it's great to meet you. He said, Dave, you're from the Hills, aren't you? And I said, well, yes, sir, uh, I am. I'm from Oxford. My, I grew up in Oxford. My grandparents and great-grandparents were from Pontotoc in New Albany. He said, Dave, do you know what the first thing you guys from the Hills uh, say to someone when you meet them for the first time? And I said, well, no, sir, I'm not exactly sure. And he said, well, the first thing y'all, y'all ask anybody is, well, what church do you go to? And I said, well, we do that from time to time. <clears throat> and he said, down here in the Delta, we do things a little bit differently. <clears throat> the first question we ask anybody is, what whiskey do you drink? <laughs> and, and, and then we know what church you go to. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that is funny. You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. 
Ah, good show today. Hope thank you for listening. I just want to say thanks real quick. Um, I tell you what, we've been having a great conversation with author, uh, documentary producer, U.S. District Court clerk, uh, Renaissance man, Northern uh, David Cruz is with us. I'm sorry, David, I just had a Monday moment there. You know that kind of, that kind of thing kind of happens a little bit. Tell us real quick. I have, I- I have those seven days a week. Oh, goodness. I know. I, I guess it's supposed to be, you're not supposed to do that when you're on the radio, but, you know, occasionally I do. I got to tell you, um, you do have an incredibly cool job, but I don't think a lot of people know what the court clerk does. And so tell us a little bit about what you do on a day to day basis. Well, um, you know, our court operates in a, in a complex environment to ensure justice is rendered and, and that the court operates professionally at all times. You know, I head the court's administrative and operational division. The judges do the judging, and I try to oversee a really talented, capable, skillful staff that handles all the day-to-day concerns regarding, you know, bringing in jurors, um, coordinating with security with the U.S. Marshals, coordinating with the United States Probation Service. Um, but I, I am so blessed and lucky. I've got the most talented staff in the world of, of, of you know, law of, of jury administrators, case managers, budget and procurement specialists and finance experts, highly knowledgeable IT uh, professionals, I've got the best chief deputy clerk in the world, a guy named Daniel Daniel Boone McHugh. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, it, it's really just a, my job is kind of a job of, of essentially court choreography, keeping the the wheels uh, uh, humming so that the judges can, can do their very, very important work. Um, and our judges are so smart, focused, adept, and, and deeply schooled in the law. We've really got a fine operation uh, here in the Northern District of Mississippi, and as you probably know, you know Mississippi is broken into two federal judicial districts: the Northern District of Mississippi, um, uh, up here headquartered in Oxford, but also with courthouses down in Aberdeen and and in the Mississippi Delta, um, and then the, the Southern District of Mississippi, headquartered out of out of Jackson. One, you know, another aspect of, of my job is is you know in, ensuring that our facilities are are in great shape so right now um um we are building a brand new federal courthouse in greenville down in the delta just a block away from the mississippi river um and uh, from lake ferguson on the mississippi river and um and we're also doing a, a huge complete renovation of our aberdeen courthouse um, because it, we had an outbreak of black mold there and uh, sickened two, two of my judges and several staffers. So I closed that courthouse down five years ago, and we're now uh, in the middle of a, of a major renovation of that, that courthouse. So, so in some ways, I'm more of a, you know, I'm a contractor in some ways more than anything else these days. Tell us about some of the other jobs you've had along the way that, you know, I mean, that obviously prepared you for this moment. Well, my brother, oh, like to say, David can't hold a job. Um, so I, I have had a number of jobs in U.S. Marshall, as, as, as you indicated. Um, frankly, uh, um, um, you know, I, I was a financial investigator for, for a while. I worked for William Winter um, right, you know, right out of college. I, one of the biggest blessings of my life was when I was in, in college at the University of the South at Suwannee, Tennessee, I, I had the great fortune to win a, 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 
a, a fellowship to write a paper on on Southern politics or history, and I I, I wrote you know proposal. Um, uh, um, and I won. It was a competition between students at, at Rhodes College, uh, Sewanee, and and uh, uh, Vanderbilt, and and maybe one other school. And I won. But I'd written a kind of I'd, I'd written a proposal, and and then I had to figure out what I was really going to do. Um, and so I'd never met William Winter. He was lieutenant governor at the time, and I, I wrote him on my old manual typewriter and said, Hey. I, I would like to come spend two weeks in your office in, there in the Capitol and talk to you about Mississippi politics and history and maybe observe what goes on in, in the state Capitol. He'd never met me. I was astonished when he wrote me back and said, yeah, come on down. Come on down. I'd be glad for you to, to, to spend a couple of weeks in my office. Um, so uh, one day he told me, um, he said, Dave, um, Tomorrow, which is going to be your last day, he said, I'm going down to the, uh, or day after tomorrow, I'm going down to the Gulf Coast to give a speech uh, to the Mississippi Education Association. So I won't see you on your last day. It's been great having you. Thanks for being being with us. Um, and uh, so that that night, I went to what is now the Eudora Wealthy Library and did some research on some educational topics in, uh, that was going on in Mississippi at the time. And I, um, uh, I, I, Kind of did a bunch of research and then wrote him a speech and I gave it to him the next day, and and I said, hey, these these are some things that you might find interesting that you know might undergird your your talk uh, um, day after tomorrow, um, and, and and he said, well, thanks, and he he evidently read it and he called me back in about an hour later into his office and said, hey, Dave, this is pretty good. Um, do you mind if I use a good portion of this as part of my speech? And I said, no, it's for you. I, I'm de- I'd be delighted. And he said. Well, if I'm going to read your speech, you're coming with me. So I flew down to the to to the to Biloxi with with Lieutenant Governor Winter, and um um and it was the first I was 19 years old, the first time I'd ever flown in my life, and um I got to listen to him. The, about half of his speech were were my words, and so it was a great thrill for a young kid. And when we got back, he said he said Dave. What are you doing for the rest of the summer? And I said, well, I got to go find a job. And he said, Well, no. Why don't you just keep working with me? And uh, I said, Well, I can't afford to. And he said, No, you can come live in my house. So I lived in his house there on Crane Boulevard in Jackson. Spent the rest of the summer um, and and really learned a lot. And then when he ran for governor in 1979, uh, he asked me to come down and do the media portion of his campaign. We won, and um, I had the great privilege to work with him for four years. You know, when he was pushing the 1982 Education Reform Act, we brought Governor Winter um, brought kindergartens and compulsory school attendance to Mississippi for the first time, and a range of other reforms that were really important um, to undergirding, you know, the economic fabric of our state. Definitely on that. I mean, he and Ms. Winter, I mean, just I remember one time I went to a dinner and they they ended up sitting across from me the whole evening, and it was like. I mean, I felt like I got an education about Mississippi in about a two-hour period that I never would have gotten anywhere else. Yeah, you know, so true. And I, I'll tell you another thing I'm very grateful to Governor Winter for is uh, back when I was dating um, Claire, my bride, um, uh, you know, 28, 20, you know, 30 years ago, uh, he, uh, Governor Winter invited me uh, to his home uh, for dinner one night. You know, this is long after I'd, I'd worked for him. And uh, he said, Dave, aren't you dating uh, some girl from Texas? And I said, well, yes, sir, I am. He said, well, bring her, too. Uh, I think he knew I needed some help. And uh, so 
So I, I went to dinner at his house that night. Well, who else was there? Willie Morris was there for dinner, and Eudora Welty was there for dinner. Oh, wow. And, and Governor Winter placed <laughs> my girlfriend at the time, now my bride, placed Claire right smack dab in between Willie Morris and Eudora Welty. I'm pretty sure that's the only reason she married me because she was so delighted to get to to to, to visit with Willie and and Eudora. And in fact, you know, Willie went to the you know went to the yeah he went to Texas, Texas yeah, and it was a Rhodes Scholar from there. And tech and and uh, so uh, Willie, you know, just delightful impish Willie all night long. He kept referring to Claire as as Miss Texas. Oh, I'm just delighted to be here with Miss Texas. And it was just a hoot. Yeah, I, I got to know, I got to meet Willie, I guess, not too long before he passed away. But, I mean, I got to meet him in a book signing, and he was familiar enough with my cartoons that, he, you know, he looked at me and he just started naming off some of them that he really liked. And, I mean, by the time I got done with the conversation, I felt like I was about 10 feet tall. He just had this real okay. gift of being able to make you feel. And you talk about sense of place. Now, he could create in his in what he wrote a sense of place better than just about anybody I've ever read. Uh, with without a doubt, and just a just a delightful storyteller and and, and author and 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 just a, a prince of a, prince of a fella, you know. And, and and speaking about you know Miss Wealthy and Claire's getting to meet Miss Wealthy. Yeah. Can, can I share with you, Can I share with you the story of how I first met Miss Wealthy? I would love to hear that. Well, well so back, you know back in the eighties. The only you didn't have the internet, you didn't have access to say the New York Times online like you do today, and so every day um, I, at noon I would leave my office and go uh, to buy. Uh, I'd go get in a workout and then I'd go by Parkins Pharmacy and buy the New York Times. Well, every once in a while I'd see Miss Wealthy in in there. She'd drive precariously up from her home there on Pinehurst and Bellhaven to Parkins Pharmacy right there next to Jitney 14. And uh, and, she, and I'd see her occasionally buying the New York Times, and I thought to myself, well, dang, if Miss Wealthy wants to read the New York Times, she doesn't have to drive over here. I'll buy two and start delivering it to her. To her. So I, I pledged uh, the, the bill behind the counter to Secretary. I said, Bill, I, I need two today. I'm going to start delivering Miss Wealthy's. And and um, I said, but she if she ever asks you to do it, you know, just just t- lie and tell her you don't know. Well, uh, this went on for about two weeks, and I go in one day to Parkins Parkins, and and Bill says, Dave, Dave, Miss Wealthy was in here this morning, and she asked if we were delivering her New York Times, um, and I said, No, man, we're not. And she said, Well, it's so odd, it appears on my doorstep about one o'clock every afternoon. Do you know who's who's delivering it? And he lied and said, No, ma'am, I don't. Well, the next day. What my what I would do is I'd park my pickup truck about a half block from her home. I'd run across her yard. I'd drop the, the New York Times on her front doorstep, and I'd run back to my truck, go back to work. Well, on, on this day, Miss Welty had had hidden underneath the steering wheel of her car in the little gravel driveway next to her home. And, and was watching, and when I dropped the newspaper off, she dramatically flung the door to her car open and, and raised up and said, Aha, I found you out. And, um, and, and so she invited me into her home, and, and just such a genuine, sweet woman invited me into her home, and, at one, and, and we went into her kitchen, and she broke out a bottle of Maker's Mark whiskey, and at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, she and I had a glass of Maker's Mark whiskey. 
um, and, and, and told stories, which mainly consisted of her telling stories and me listening. Um, and uh, so that, that went on for the next 10 years until, until she died. And, uh, and, and literally about once every month or two, she would invite me in uh, uh, for a glass of whiskey. So I've always felt like I got amply paid um, for being uh, uh, Miss Wealthy's paper boy. That's fantastic. You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. It's a great interview today with author David Cruz. And I say author, too, as well. And you're also into doing documentaries. Um, Unrivaled was fantastic. And there's a lot of things I got from it. You know, obviously, uh, just learning about football, which was literally just throwing a couple lions and something perfect for the Romans. I mean, it was just absolutely the brutality of football in 1899. And for Swanee's team to do what they did is incredible. And we're going to break this down. But the fact that you had interviews with Johnny Majors, Vince Dooley, and Bobby Bowden, who are no longer with us, just to get to see them on screen again was so incredibly wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, well, it, it was a treat and a half to, to interview those those three co- coaches and, and, of course, Nick Saban, who's very much still alive. Yeah, it, it, um, y- you, you can appreciate, Marshall, how incredibly adept – and, and how much understanding guys, national national championship winning coaches like Vince Dooley and Bobby Bowden and Johnny Majors have about football. And Vince Dooley in particular is is uh, is a football historian. And these guys study football so much they knew about this story, and and it really enriched the film to get their insights. Um, um, about the game and how was it played at that time with no forward passes, with next to no padding. It was a brutal game. You'd have 17, 18 deaths uh, in some years back then. Um, and, you know, the game, it was, there was so many features that are very similar, um, but so many features that were different. Back then, it, you, uh, it only t- it, you had to get five yards for a first down, but it only took three, uh, three downs to get uh, five yards for a first down. Scoring was different. Uh, a, a, a field goal and a touchdown were worth the same amount, five points. Um, so, you know, football has evolved uh, uh, greatly over time. But, but Unrivaled, it is at its core a football story about the grit and determination of that team and about the what may be the most, un, it, certainly the rarest, most unprecedented road trip in football history where Swanee, played five games in six days, traveling 2,500 miles by steam locomotive, um, and, and then going 12-0 and 0, uh, for the entire season. It's the most phenomenal road trip. At Suwannee, um, they say uh, Suwannee played five games in six days, and on the seventh day they rested. And that's a great biblical reference, but it's not true because Suwannee didn't rest. They went on to go 12-0, and 0, and only one – team scored on them all season long, and that was Auburn University coached by John Heisman of, of, of Heisman Trophy fame, um, and, um, uh, and there, there were just some great things uh, that happened in that game against Auburn. Guns were pulled. Amazing, yeah. Tons, tons of betting. It was just, it was an extraordinary season, and one, I, I call, I, I named the, the film Unrivaled, because that is, cert, that is the most unrivaled a uh, road trip in football history. No one would ever attempt to uh, play play five games in six days. Um, as, as I think Bobby Bowden said, no one would try to play 
uh, two games in two days today. Well, I mean, on top of that, I mean, seriously, you grow out your hair to use as padding instead of a helmet. I mean, I mean that that's crazy. The the contraption that you wore over your nose, I couldn't even imagine being a lineman because, you know, you you would smash your face going into it, and you played both sides of the balls. And if you got injured, they put you know basically plaster of Paris in your wounds to keep you from bleeding. I mean, it was just insane. The, the degree of, you know, like you are saying, that beating. Now, Luke Lee, the promoter, and I've, I've always wondered, I was like, man, you need a Luke Lee to be your agent, you know, because Luke Lee, um, he, he gets stuff done. 20 years old, puts together, like you said, one of the most incredible road trips in the history of anything. I mean, you just puts them on a train, gets them playing against big, big teams, gets them out to – because you couldn't get to Texas – I mean, Texas was at that point out in the middle of nowhere. So he scheduled all these other things to make it financially viable. And like you said, the rest is history. Yeah, and and I appreciate your mentioning Luke Lee because he was the pivotal uh, uh, pivotal character in that season. He didn't play on the team; he was the student manager. Um, and but he crafted the entire season. And and. Um, and and you can so it, while he's a student at Shawnee, you can see him cutting his teeth on really ambitious projects while a student. He then goes on to become the second United, the second youngest United States senator in history. Um, at that time, he um, he imagine this, Marshall. He leaves the United States Senate when World War One breaks out to join the United States Army. He goes to Europe. He hatches a plot to capture the Kaiser to bring the war to an end. Um, he comes within a hair's breadth of capturing the Kaiser in Belgium. Um, he's ultimately unsuccessful. He's almost court-martialed because he didn't have orders to capture the Kaiser. But you can see his life just goes from one adventure, one piece of daring do after another uh, throughout his career. He, he, he owned, he, owned um, he became a businessman, a banker. He owned the Nashville, Tennessee, and he owned a paper in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, he owned a paper in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, he gave 3,500 acres of land uh, to the city of Nashville to form uh, Percy Warner Park, which is essentially the, uh, the, the, the central park of, of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, imagine what, what 3,500 acres of pristine land uh, would be worth in Nashville, Tennessee today. And he gave that, that land away to the city to form this park. And he didn't name it for himself. He named it for his father-in-law. How many of us would name a, <laughs> that? Name it for our father-in-law, Percy Warner. Yeah, just I mean, just incredible. Like I said, and being a newspaper publisher and owner at that point was just meant you were a zillionaire. I mean, he he was very successful in business, and and I think Coach Suter was another one that was very fascinating. He was just a natural leader and a strict disciplinarian. I mean, and it was down to the individual players that this team was. They were just each player was a unique character. Um, did a great job on the documentary too. I mean, the art was beautiful in it. It was very well written. You had great music. Uh, it was just a fun. It was fun, and and I'd always known that they were undefeated, and I always knew that they were a force of nature. But it was just fascinating learning the little tidbits about football. Like for instance, why it's called a touchdown. You had to literally touch the ball on the ground after you crossed the goal line, or it wasn't yeah. didn't count. Which I exactly. never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I didn't know it either until I went into this, and, and my partner in this, a, a, 
my uh, my classmate it's Wani Norman Jetmanson. He and I came up with the idea of doing this film, and we collaborated on it. Uh, we had to do we had to raise all the money for it. We had to do all the research. And, and frankly, I thought that that the story was going to be largely lore. That this this is too phenomenal to be true. But we documented everything, and it took us four years to make it because you know I've got a more than a full time job. You got a day job, and, yeah. Yeah, and my bride only lets me work on things like this on the weekends, and um, uh, so it took four years to make it. We had to do all the research, raise all the money, conduct all the interviews, um, and 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 then I, I had a t- the most talented editor, film editor in the world, Matthew Graves, who used to live here in Oxford but now lives in Charleston, South Carolina, and just a phenomenal, uh, 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 talented, skillful guy. Uh, so you know, filmmaking. Unlike writing a, putting together a book, where you, you do it essentially all on your own, as, as you would know better than anybody, Marshall, to do a film takes a lot of collaboration. Uh, you got to bring a lot of a talented team together, and we did. Talented musicians got Bobby Horton uh, agreed to do the music um, for our film. Bobby, of course, has done most of the the uh, uh, music for Ken Burns's of uh, uh, documentaries through the years. Talented artist. Uh, talented uh, and actor recreators. In fact, one of them was my son, who's who's a very shy guy, but was an incredible uh, um, actor in the film, recreating the scenes uh, of, of both Luke Lee and Diddy Siebel's the star running back. So, what project are you working on today? Well, um, I got a couple going. Uh, one in honor of my bride. I'm I'm I've I have put together the Texas Book of Quotations. Um, and I hope to get it published uh, within the next year. And But on the film side, I'm doing a documentary film um, on Soggy Sweat and the Whiskey Speech. Nice. Um, the iconic whiskey speech. And, and um, I, I, I've already done a ton of interviews. In fact, Marshall, when I saw you at the conference on the front porch, the reason I was there was to interview Mac McAnally uh, about the art of storytelling. And because this 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 treatment I'm going to do of of, of Soggy and the whiskey speech um, is going to deal with all the dynamics and and all in the texture of the whiskey speech. You know, it is intensely humorous, but it's also there's there's elements of politics, of economics, of 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 uh, human nature. Um, whether you struggle with with liquor or whether it enlivens you, and so I'm I'm dealing with all the complex complexities. Of, of liquor in our society, both the good and the bad, uh, um, uh, the rich and the evil. And, and so I've interviewed a ton of people. I've interviewed linguists. I've interviewed people who understand oratory because, uh, you know, it was first delivered as, uh, as, as a speech, but it's more than a speech. It's, it's deft storytelling, really powerful deft storytelling. And so that's, that's my current project. I've still got a ways to go, uh, but it's just a, a, a rich and compelling and, and riveting uh, project, and I hope it'll be a, a, a riveting and compelling film at the end of the day. I've always loved the speech. I can't wait to see the documentary. David, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Uh, the book is the Mississippi Book of Quotations. It's updated, expanded. It's got 100 new quotations in there. And like I said, Texas is coming up, too, and that should be colorful. David, how can fi- folks find out more about you? Uh I, I just call me on the phone. I reckon uh, I'm, not all, I, I'm not all that sophisticated, uh, um, and don't, I don't have a website. Um, but you can get in touch with me through Nautilus 
<clears throat> Publishing, which is Neil Watts Publishing Company, uh, or, uh, um, or or just just give me a just give me a call or send me an email. Yes, yeah, NautilusPublishing.com. Uh, David, that was probably the best answer I've ever gotten in five years of doing this. So thank you very much on that. I really enjoyed the conversation, and like I said, you know, you actually walked the whole Natchez Trace and survived. I walked a quarter of a mile this weekend, and nearly got hit by three cars. So right there, <laughs> you just have my admiration. So this is great. It's been a fun interview. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Marshall. This is a delight. I always enjoy your program. If, if I have one minute, I got. I got to say, my bride. She th- she said, "There's no way you can talk for an hour on a program called Now You're Talking." And I said, "Yeah, well, I'm gonna tell Marshall. He needs to change the name of the program to Now You're Not Talking because she doesn't think I'm a good talker." And well, I think she's- you pulled it off. So we got to run. But hey, thanks again, David. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear this or any past episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast. Listen to the podcast. It's great. It's on the podcast apps or on MPB Public Media app. Now You're Talking is produced by the incredible Jermaine Flood. Thank you, Jermaine. Stay tuned. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit is coming up next. Join us next Monday at 10 a.m. as I chat with another we're going to try to get basically Malcolm White in on the show so that's that's the plan so tune in I'm Marshall Ramsey I hope you have an awesome week this is an MPB Think Radio podcast to hear previous shows visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand 